They shouldn't win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2 0. Game's done, done, dusted. We win the game. Officials cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Chikiri, hasn't he the funniest shape? He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. It's a joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree at the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio Everywhere you can listen to a podcast you will find Tree at the Back So we would hugely appreciate if you could hit the subscribe button and keep up to date with us for the season Later on in part 2 of the show we'll be speaking to the Racing Post's Andy Sinnott about all things Chelsea in the Frank Lampard era so stay tuned for that. But first, I'm here as always with Keen and Phil to talk about the Premier League action this weekend. How are you, lads? Okay, very Keen. How are things? How are you? How do you, lads? Lads, so we're one weekend into the Premier League um, and Liverpool's big win on Friday night was the curtain raiser, which was quickly followed by Manchester City's big win on Saturday morning. And it kind of felt like nothing had changed at all. And that was until the dreaded VAR reared its head for the first few times. And then it felt like everything had changed, possibly changing how players and supporters celebrate goals forever, um, putting new phrases into the football dictionary, like clear daylight between players, um, high frames per second cameras. Um, and why is Raheem Sterling's armpit offside? Um, the technology we've yearned for for years is finally here. Um, Phil, was it worth the wait to see microscopic inspection of offsides and delayed reaction to goals? Does it does it take the life out of football? I don't think you've really lived until you've overanalyzed and overegged nine millimeters of Raheem Sterling's armpit hair being ahead of the West Ham defender. And um, like I know we've had at the major tournaments for a couple of years, and we've slowly been getting used to it and kind of been taking the piss out of like you know what referees are going over to look at on the big screen and all the rest of it this weekend <clears throat> felt like a bit of a watershed insofar as the Premier League it's over egged and over analyzed anyway that we're going to have something that is so dramatic and kind of heightened feels like it could be quite significant throughout the season um, I have to say before this weekend I was pretty in on VAR by and large on the idea that if you stopped egregious mistakes from being made it was a good thing but now, like, are we really at the point where we're like Zapruder filming Raheem Sterling and his armpit? Like, it's like back into the left the JFK tapes all over. And um, on like, is Sterling's third goal in a 5 0 win actually offside or not? It feels a bit overkill. But I mean, I suppose where we are with VAR is that it, it analyzes the rules as they exist. So I know people, like you were saying, Kev, with clear daylight, the problem there is with the offside rule. It's, it's black and white, you're offside or you're not. Bar just offers you the opportunity to microscopically get it right. Do we really care that much about microscopically getting it right? I'm not sure. Keen, yeah, I, I know you love. Um, <laughs> I know you're a huge fan of Bar. <laughs> um, to be honest, guys, like the way I look at it is right. Every football fan on the face of the planet should be issued with a copy of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, right? Because basically we're going to have to, for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about there, it's like stoicism is going to be king currency um, for the next six months because people are going to have to get used, basically get used to the fact that VAR is here. It's not going anywhere. Uh, and essentially every weekend is going to be discussion points just like happened um you know on on saturday friday saturday and sunday i mean like in the case of the the, the sterling um offside i mean like phil already said it and the point's being made so many times before like offside is offside you, you're not you're not you're, you're not like sort of a little bit offside you know, you're, you're offside, and if it picks it up and and you know gets it right, then then what's the what's the issue? You know, I, I don't really like, I don't really see an issue with it as such. The only thing I would say is that it's it's nearly it's nearly brought a, an extra confusion to to proceedings in in terms of like 
it's just, nobody seems to know at in, in the like on like in the ground and on you watching on a, on a screen. Nobody seems to know what's happening. It's like the communication seems to be the actual major issue. So if you compare it with to like the the TMO and rugby is like you can hear exactly what's going. That you know the, the the refs are mic'd up, and you can hear clear communication between what's being asked and and then the decision being made. But like. There's no you you just so you like when you're watching it you're just kind of like going oh something's something's going on not really too sure what's going on what are they looking at you know it, it just seems like they've not kind of they've not streamlined the process just right even though all the decisions they're making are correct it's it's the disconnect between everybody within the game and or or at least the officials and then everybody watching from from the outside in. Um, so that would be my my issue with it, but other than that, like yeah, I think we just we just need to have a big old sort of get together and be like, look lads, this is just the way it's going to be for for the 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 next however many of years. Do you know? Um, that's a great point, Keen. And kind of one thing I thought about over the weekend was that we were watching all of these instances on TV where you've commentary and you kind of have analysis at the time. I can't imagine what it's like sitting in a stadium and you don't know whether there's a goal and what, how to react, you know, what's going on. Um, And as bad as the lack of transparency is on TV in the stadium, you're completely lost because there's no, there's no replay. There's no analysis. There's no voiceover. Um, And I feel that, like you said, compared to the TMO, they could really fill in a lot of gaps to add a little bit of confidence to the viewers from the viewers' point of view. Um, and I mean, the way they had it in the Euros last year with the referee trotting over to the sideline was a bit ridiculous because they added a bit of circusness to it. I think they were right to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. But having some sort of explanation as to why a decision has been made would go a long way to kind of appease the fans because it is a huge culture shock. Yeah, it it feels like it feels like to me that the Premier League are only getting there. Yeah, you know, in steps. Yeah. it's like it's very it's like they're edging their way to the correct procedures, but it's like it's a step by step thing, and you're just like lads, like can everybody just with a bit of cop on and common sense all just sit in a room and go right? This is the right way to do it because it doesn't feel like they're doing that at the minute. Bar at the minute feels. I don't know if you saw that Bill Hader clip doing around uh, the last couple of days, where he's doing an impersonation of Cruise or Tom Cruise, and his face turns into Tom Cruise, and the same with Seth Rogen. It feels a bit like that. We can't trust our lion eyes anymore with Bar, and kind of technology is getting to a point where we're kind of being dictated to by the machines, and like that. That it wasn't helped by. I don't know if you heard or you saw on the television coverage of United and Chelsea, and. Um, but apparently, I never even thought of this. Old Trafford doesn't have a big screen, so they mm, can't yeah. even put the VAR decision up on the big screen. They have to use this like dystopian Black Mirror voiceover, <laughs> yeah. like VAR it's, decision, it's... no goal. It feels like a bit Black Mirror-y at the minute. The VAR is going to decide everything mm. in our life for the next couple of years. Like you know, like did you miss that train? Who called the taxi first? Who was first at the bar? Like it just it feels a bit. I don't know. It just feels a bit dystopian at the minute. I don't yeah, know. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. I'm a bit, maybe I'm a luddite. I thought the best example of it in action um, was in the Southampton game with Che Adams. Um, he kind of he clearly went for the ball in a kind of a one on one challenge, and I can't remember the player he was coming up against for uh, for Burnley, but he tipped the ball and kind of went out over it um, and caught him on the shin. And I mean, it was it would have been a hugely harsh red card um, on his first Premier League game and Bear came in and kind of you could tell based on the replays that you know there was no malice and I think he got away with a yellow card which is fair enough considering it was fairly dangerous at the end so in terms of red cards um, I think it's going to be fairly helpful um, indefinitely in terms of keeping games even um, and not having kind of red cards kind of ruin the the game midway through for for false red cards or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of offside, I mean, for years we've been kind of demanding some sort of video technology, and that might only happen kind of once a weekend at very most. I mean, and now we're at a point where every single offside is going to have a question mark over it. Whereas yeah. before we were kind of living 
with the margins, we were like, okay, he was offside, but it was his arm. We'll get over it. Yeah. That's football. Now we're at a point where it's his arm that's offside, and we're going to spend two to three minutes waiting for a decision. And I think it's just going to it's going to take a little while to get used to. Mm. Lads, I have I've a question for you. Sorry to skip in, Phil. I have a question for you. The great line, right, that everybody always uses, the decisions even themselves out over the course of a season. What yeah. actually happens to that question? <laughs> that's, that's a really like, fair point. That's been yeah. removed from the dictionary. Uh, you, you would think so, but do, do, they, do they actually even themselves out now over the course of the season? Do you get, like, surely not, because you would, you would imagine... 100% of decisions are correct. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. anyway, that was just an offshoot. Sorry. There's bound to be VAR decisions that are either too on the fence or are kind of blatantly wrong decisions. I think we had a few in the Women's World Cup where mm. they, were, they were just going to VAR for everything and it was some ridiculous, especially um, in regards to penalties. Um, yeah. So we haven't had that kind of outrageously bad VAR decision yet, which... Um, should be fun when I, when we do get one. Yeah. Like uh, even today in the in the press they were talking about um maybe slight revisions to it, like you were saying, and they're getting their kind of step by step. And one of the things they're talking about was maybe introducing this thing about like a clarification on offside of like clear day, daylight. But like no matter what we do with the offside rule and so if they say, Okay, you have to be six inches offside then you're going to get into the microscope of he of microscoping of he was like six point zero one inches offside mm-hmm, versus exactly. 5.5 inches. With stuff like offside, there's always going to be that really like contentious small margin thing because, like you said, again, like you can't be half pregnant. You're like you're mm-hmm. offside or you're not. Um, yeah, whereas, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, with things like red cards and stuff, like you're saying, Kev, like it, it, there could be some kind of wild subjective things on handballs or red cards because at the end of the day, it's a tool for the refs to implement the laws. It's not, you know, the machine's only giving you the technology to look back at an instant. Uh, like, a, a VAR ref could decide that one thing's a handball and the on-ref, the on-field ref could disagree with it. So I think there's still plenty of room for messing around. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've just had a load of fajitas there. So I essentially feel half pregnant right now. <laughs> Um, I think on that note we'll we'll uh, move over to uh, <laughs> we'll move on to the to the re-election um, which kicked off on Saturday, on Friday night sorry um, at Anfield. Um, Phil Liverpool kind of picked up where they left off last year. Um, I mean they didn't really get into fifth gear, but it was a fairly rootless first half. Um, obviously blackened a little bit by the injury to Allison. Um, were you pleased with um, with how things kicked off there? Yeah, I mean, like, there's nothing really, you can't be too pissed off at four goals in the first half and, like, whatever happens in the second half happens. But, like, they scored basically a goal every 10 minutes in the first half. Um, and, like you said, the only bad thing that really happened was Alisson going off injured. Uh, a couple of couple of people looked sharp, a couple of people looked a little bit off it. Um, one thing I was, it was really notable, I didn't see loads of Norwich last year. They were, I thought they were really impressive. Like, quite open, but that meant that they were able to get it at Liverpool. There was... A thing doing the rounds, they're only the third side since the beginning of the last season to stop to keep Liverpool under 500 passes at home or something. So it was like Spurs mm-hmm. and City twice have managed to stop Liverpool making 500 passes at home and now Norwich. So I was really impressed by them. It was more of a takeaway from that than Liverpool. Like you said in the, in the intro, it kind of felt like return to normal services if the last season never stopped with how they kind of pretty much steamrolled them and were mm-hmm. able to play the second half at even a slower pace again. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, you can't really get too wound up with a four win in the first weekend of the season, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think you learn more about Norwich uh, than you did about Liverpool, really, in that game. Um, I mean, Liverpool, lads, we spoke about it last week. Like Liverpool have not regressed, and I think that that first performance, even though it was against a promoted team, signified that. Uh, like you know, they this like 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 you said. Well, they, they steamrolled them. They literally kept it. Even though Norwich played quite well, they just sort of sat there, waited for their chance, and broke broke Norwich down. Um, and and like watching Norwich a lot last year in the championship, you know they they scored a lot of goals but conceded a lot of goals. And, and that's that's basically what you saw there last night. Is just that they they didn't have, you know, the likes of Pookie and that they were playing against. 
second caliber opponents, second caliber defenders in the championship that didn't have, they weren't coming up against the likes of Van Dyke. Um, you know, so that that just showed you the it, it really did show you the gulf in class between the championship and the top level of the Premier League. Um, but yeah, like to be honest, lads, it was business as usual for Liverpool. Um, impressive would have been overly impressive if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think the manner in which they considered the first goal would have been a right blow because I mean you've been you've been building up this game for weeks and you've been preparing for it and the fact that it was a, a dodgy own goal of your most experienced defender um would have been a real kind of a, a blow to a, to your confidence and it kind of seemed to fall apart from there. Um following on from your point there, Phil, I think we probably did learn more about Norwich in terms of Especially um, going forward, they they seem to provide a lot. Um, they seemed kind of nearly Liverpool-like in how the fullbacks went forward. Um, and I mean, the um, Aaron's uh, Max Aaron's the mm-hmm. right back mm-hmm. um, looked very good going forward. And I mean, we see all the money going around for fullbacks the last couple of years. He could be um, could be a bit of a bargain um, in that regard. Um, and I mean, I hadn't seen a lot of Timu Puki. Um, Keen, you're probably a little bit more familiar with him, but mm-hmm. he looks like a player that's going to score 15 plus goals if he can keep that kind of form up. And I mean, if you're a bottom half team and you've got a 15 to 20 goal striker, um, that's going to be massive. And I mean, I, I read an unbelievable stat that um, in his last eight seasons, he scored with his first shot on target in each season. Mm. I mean, that's, that's insane. Mm. Yeah, he was he was very impressive last year with Norwich and like, you know, essentially took everybody by surprise because his previous stint um at Celtic wasn't overly impressive. But I mean, like this is the thing with with like players it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes players can play in sides and just not really perform in that particular side because the side doesn't suit them. The setup of of play doesn't suit them. The manager doesn't suit them. The location doesn't suit them. You know, so, and and they can literally then just sort of fit like a glove into another mm. into another club. And that's obviously like the talent identification process. And you know, at Norwich, the recruitment process has obviously um, been very successful there. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like it would it would still surprise me to see him score fifteen odd goals, um, really? in the Premier League. But um, yeah, it would do. It would do. But I think Norwich will will continue to be offensive, and I think they will score goals. But I think they'll they'll share them um, throughout the team. And I, I know you've still got the likes of Glenn Murray, who will get you know fifteen odd goals for for a Brighton side, and you know like there are strikers within smaller teams who will score a lot of goals. But I don't really feel that with Norwich. Um, however, I do think Norwich could um, could actually stay up. Um, they would be. With Villa, um, basically my two teams that that I think will stay up, um, of the of the sorry of the of the promotion uh, teams. But yeah, uh, like I, I guess I guess in terms of Pookie, like I mean he was an absolute bargain, absolute bargain. I I couldn't tell you much he cost. I'd say it was less than a million. Um, yeah, absolutely tr- terrific sign. Um, Phil, how do you think Simon Mignolet felt um, on Friday night watching this? <laughs> yeah, I'd say, like, I mean, isn't that just typical of Mignolet's luck? Um, like, you know, he hangs around for 18 months for a chance in net, <laughs> and the second he jets off, then, like, Adrian, not even at the club a week, and he's he's on the pitch. Um, however about Mignolet felt, I felt the downside better than he did, I'd imagine, that it wasn't Mignolet coming off the bench. I was pretty happy that they managed to get some the him out and anyone in. Like you know, like a packet of crisps or some smoke would have done about <laughs> as well as as many days have been doing for Every, the Everyone except Carrius, I think that's the, right, the yeah, general that's, consensus. That's true as well. And um, but like, it, it, like I mean, I'd say mainly on balance. Like obviously, to take a bit of a serious point seriously. I'd say he's I'd say he's happy that he got the good move, but it is kind of typical of like it's just really a mini thing to happen that uh, the the big chance will come for kind of like a a six to eight week run in the squad just after he leaves. Um, but like I think that they've got a good second option there. Um, he like obviously Adrian was pretty impressive over his spell in West Ham. 
Um, I I know he had he had a pretty good um shot or shot save percentage ratio, and I think his like xG against was quite strong as well. Um, Liverpool I thought were a little loose after the loss to Allison, just purely because they had a fella playing behind them that's only been at the club for five days. So I think they kind of lost. They weren't sure about where his positioning was. He wasn't sure about like distribution and stuff. So I thought things got a bit looser, and I thought with Norwich attacking them, Liverpool kind of didn't have the certainty of having Allison behind them. I think it hurt them a little bit. But mm. give him a, a while to kind of get into shape with it, and I think Adrian's pretty as as bad as good a number two as you can ask for in the circumstances. I think. How does that like? How would that affect the dynamic? Do you think, lads? Do you know what I mean in terms of it, you've just nailed it there, Phil? Like you know, Allison, such a commanding sort of a sure presence behind the defence, and obviously, you know, when you take that away, you've got this sort of especially because Adrian's only in the in the door. You know, you've got this real sort of unknown kind of, you know, intangible behind you. Like, what, 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 like, how do you feel like that's going to affect the side in the next six weeks? Um, I was just going to say, I think the fact that we haven't seen him made a mistake yet will kind of paper up or whatever worries fans have and maybe the defence as well. Whereas I think if that was Carius or Mignolet trotting on, you're like, oh, yeah. we've a, we've yeah. a month of these two. Mm. There's bound to be something. I mean, there's bound to be a mistake yeah. or, or a miscake or a, a drop ball. Whereas with Adrian, he's kind of an, an unknown quantity. Obviously, he had a couple of years at West Ham, but we haven't experienced an Adrian mistake so far. So I think he could maybe survive the, the four or five weeks. Um, yeah. But obviously, if there's a mistake, then you're kind of... There's a lump in your throat every time. Uh, yeah. Whoever is attacking against Liverpool. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it there, Kev. Like, th- th- there is a certainty with many lane carries, and that's that they're going to fuck up. Like, and <laughs> I, and like, Alexander Arnold, and the guys know what it's like to have carries and many behind them. Whereas with Adrian, they, they don't even know, so he can prove himself, kind of. Um, I do think, and uh, like, by, by, like I, I, know, I know he's a good shot stopper. I didn't pay that much attention, surprisingly, to his distribution when he was at West Ham. It's not my bag, but um, by all accounts, he's quite good. With distribution, which is important for this Liverpool team, because Allison's excellent. Um, Friday's probably a harsh thing to judge him by. I thought a few times he played balls long when the teams were kind of where the team was set up to receive it short, and it kind of left us a bit open in the middle. Um, but I, I, you'd assume that's going to come with time. Um, it was a very settled back four or back five, including the goalkeeper last year, like minus the Van Dyke centre half partnership. So it was two fullbacks were the same. Van Dyke was always there, and then it was Matip. Mm-hmm. Lovren or Gomez and Allison at the back. So it was really settled and it was a really good defensive rhythm uh, and also really good for setting and springing off attacks. So there's a good bit of work to do there in terms of the fellow who wasn't even at the club two weeks ago mm. to get up to speed. But um, if if he can keep any sort of pace as to how Liverpool started last season defensively, it'd be really encouraging. Um, Keane, um, it looked like it was going to be the perfect start um, to life in the Premier League for Villa, mm. ignoring Jack Grealish's absolutely ridiculous hairstyle for a, for a minute. <laughs> um, how, how did you feel for the first 73 minutes there against Spurs? Uh, well, first things first, uh, Kev, you can't beat a baller with a hairband. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, like it, it takes serious plums to pull that off and Jack Grealish has got a beautiful pair of plums. Um, no, like, I, I would... You know, in terms of how the game went, it kind of... I actually think it went how I thought it would go. Um, I did... Okay, fair enough. I did say last week, I thought that we would we would do Spurs. Um, and we, you know, we very nearly, nearly did. But the intensity with which Spurs played at surprised me. Mm. Like, even though... You know, even though Villa kind of held on up until the 70th minute mark, and even you know, we, Villa were very impressive in the first half, and that that didn't really take me by surprise. The intensity and continued intensity with which Spurs play that did take me by surprise. Like they were just coming and coming in waves, um, and like, look, if you can afford to bring on. A midfielder with the quality of Christian Eriksen, you know, you're you're likely in a good place. And he really I changed mean, the game, didn't he? He did, he did, he did. He changed the game, and you know that extra sort of noose kind of really came to the fore. And 
Villa were kind of tiring at that mark because they'd worked hard and they'd made Dean Smith had made a couple of changes that didn't really work. Um, so I mean, like, look from Villa's point of view, it was a learning experience. I think a lot of the a lot of the, the players who came in did really well. I think uh, Engels and Mings at the back were absolutely amazing. And um, yeah. from Villa's point of view, um, you know, they really, really were top class defending. Um, but yeah, I think Spurs got the rub of the green in, in Harry Kane's second goal. Um, I think it was like a bit of pinball within the, you know, Grealish had kind of dawdled on the ball. Um, and then somebody had taken a strike and it, it just fell lovely. Um, for Kane and, and that was that and I think there was never really any way back so I mean like 3-1 was probably a little bit harsh on Villa um, in, in terms of the, the overall game but like I'm not downhearted um, certainly I thought Villa played really well and I think against lesser sides I think we'll, we'll do serious damage to them but um, the one thing that really struck me actually like just from a, just from a, an overall point of view was like was actually how nimble and fit Harry Kane looked. Yeah. Um. He looked like I, I'd seen it discussed before, but he looked really kind of like he looked like he'd lost a bit of weight. He looked like he he was a little bit sharper, a little bit um quicker than than he'd normally been maybe the last two years. I mean, there was one point where he was like flying down the left hand um flank. I I don't know who he's up against. It could have been Al Mahamedy for Villa, and he literally just he was like a gazelle. Do you know what I mean? He was just springing off um, yeah, a lot quicker than I'd seen him before. Um, so that would be, and, and obviously, like the two, the two, he really only had two opportunities in the game and he tucked them with a plum. So it's like, it, Kane, if Kane is on form, fit and firing like that all season, like Spurs could be in a very, very good place. I wasn't overly impressed with uh, Ndombele. I thought he was, I thought he was good. Would have been great. Um, I think there's a lot more to come from him. And even if Spurs do lose Ericsson, I think Lascelles could be, you know, really good. To you know, he's a, he's obviously an excellent player that could come in there. But you'd you'd love to hang on to Ericsson. Like I think Spurs, uh, I'd be a little little bit reticent to put them in the same bracket as City and Liverpool. I think the two. City, I think Liverpool and City are a little bit, you know, out of out of reach, but. I think Spurs could go close. I think Spurs could go close to to, to matching them um, on that. But yeah, uh, overall, from a Villa point of view, definitely encouraging. Can I ask you, lads, how you saw it? Well, I was just about to say, going into it, um, I was kind of looking forward to seeing McGean and Grealish mm. and Howren and how that was kind of going to work. Mm. And in the end, I was I was just so impressed by Mings and Engels. Yeah. And I mean. Uh, I know to take nothing away from the from the goals, but Ndombele scored. I mean, a pretty good goal, but mm. it kind of I think it came from a set piece, um, mm. from a corner that fell to him, and then Harry Kane scored two very Harry Kane goals. Yeah, that not, that not many strikers or or anyone is going to be capable yeah. of doing. So I think three one kind of it flattered Spurs in a way in that I think Villa looked much better than than the net scoreline. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think. And Keen, you touched on it there. I think as good as Harry Kane could be all season, I think they really need to hold on to Ericsson to have any aspirations of either winning the league or winning the Champions League or even the FA Cup. I think he's the game changer there. And obviously we haven't seen Lo Celso yet or, or, or what kind of impact he makes, but Ericsson is just class. I mean, mm-hmm. to have that to come off the bench mm-hmm. um, and... I think we we probably experienced it with uh, with Denmark and Ireland that, on those two yeah, occasions, yeah. but I mean he just he he makes it look too easy. Yeah, like he he provides kind of cut and thrust to that midfield where, like kind of to your point, but end on Bele Keane, like he was good, but like just that kind of extra little bit of cut and trust that you're not going to get from him and we, well him eventually, but like Winks doesn't have that kind of cut and trust, kind of a keep the ball moving sort of player, whereas Eriksson just makes stuff happen. Like I think. They had 11 shots when he wasn't on the pitch and 19 when he was or something mad mm. like that. Mm. So, like, he just, he just makes stuff happen. Um, one thing that's a slight worry, and if they keep him, it's absolutely great for this season, but he's gone at the end of the season. Like, he's going at yeah, the end of the yeah. season at the latest. So that's a long-term worry for Spurs. Um, but obviously, if they can keep him for this season, they'll have a decent cut. Um, like I, I, I think that game was quite typical of how Spurs are. 
um, they can be kind of a little sloppy and a little kind of off. And then because they've got people like Harry Kane and Ericsson, they can turn it around. But it always feels like it's a little bit of huffing and puffing, uh, which I think comes to bear come the kind of like last quarter of the season, which was happened from last year. Um, like if Kane can, like Kane looks back to Golden Boot win and Harry Kane sort of shape and energy. Um, like I know, Kev, you were saying they took him pretty, they, t- they took a light touch approach from him in the summer. He must have been working like a demon to kind of cut mm-hmm. himself down because he's like he's lost weight. I think he's lost muscle as well, but he just looks like springier and lighter and sharper mm-hmm. for it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that's going to in turn mean a slight change to style from how Spurs are playing. Um, but I, like, I don't think anything that happened there changed my opinion that they're probably the third best side and there's a little bit of a gap. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's a small team, they have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're here with the Racing Post's Andy Sinnott now to talk about the new era in Chelsea, which, to be fair, hasn't gone off to the best of starts. Um, a crumbling 4-0 defeat away to United at the weekend puts a scope on the Frank Lampard era immediately, and it certainly didn't help with the with um, with Jose Marino overlooking his every move from the, the Sky Studio on Sunday. Um, Andy, I guess we'll start at the beginning and the appointment of Lampard on day one. Did you feel that that was the right choice at the time, or would you have maybe gone for some more experience, or or even even kept um, Mauricio Sarri on for another year? Well, I think um, Frank Lampard was very much a free hit. Uh, this season is obviously marred by both the transfer ban and Chelsea losing. They're, they're obviously their best player, uh, and possibly the league's one of the league's best players over the last few years. So, bringing in Frank and and making a transition from a real superstar and a superstar-led team to a more youthful um, English core team was was pretty much a free hit that they had to take. I think the club had become a little bit toxic under Maurizio Sarri. I think there was times where last season that there was definitely a lot of empty seats in the ground and the fans really never warmed to Sarri. So in terms of the board appointing Frank Lampard, I think it was to get the fans back on board, manage us through this season where there's going to be a lot of change, a lot of transition, um, and probably the lowest expectations with, with Chelsea Football Club since Abramovich really took over. So I think the appointment was probably the right time. I think if you if you had brought in someone like Allegri or Tuchel or, or someone else that was touted for that position, expectations would have been a little bit higher. It might have just been the the same old Chelsea where expectations weren't met by Christmas and and they were sacked and someone else was brought in to do a short-term job. Whereas I think the appointment of Frank Lampard looks a little bit more longer term. Um, I think he'd be given a lot more time than people that have gone before him to shape his own team and to bring bring through some youth players as well. Um, I suppose, aside from being a club legend, like you said, there's a, a relatively soft degree of pressure um, especially compared to previous Chelsea managers and any of the the mentioned managers, if they had been given the the role as boss, um, I suppose given the loss of Hazard, uh, the transfer ban didn't help. Uh, what would be a, a good season, a, a good first season for Lampard? It's a it's a strange one really because it, in his interviews before and during preseason and before the first game at United, he. He was talking very much of aiming as high as possible and possibly challenging from the title. But I think I think that was more the position he was in and what he felt he had to say. I think realistically this season, if Chelsea can consolidate, finish fifth, sixth, possibly push for a Champions League spot, 
have a good run in the Champions League and maybe a cup run, that would be seen as successful. You, you have to look at the, the picture as a whole. Um, obviously, they can get off to the best start on Sunday, but you've taken Eden Hazard out of the team who, who last year contributed 21 goals and 17 assists. And, and you're trying to replace him with bulk players. You're trying to replace him with three or four different players rather than like for like, obviously, due to the, due to the ban. But I think if Chelsea can perform to an acceptable level where they're challenging and do not get caught by teams like Leicester and Wolves and Everton and then build this season as a platform then to spring on to next season where they can put plans in place to bring top quality players back into the club and, and hopefully bring some youth through as well, I think that would be seen as a success. I think it's probably unrealistic to say that they're they're going to finish in the top four or... or they're absolutely nowhere near Man City or Liverpool. So I think that was probably the, the height of the expectations, definitely within within the fan base. We touched on it a little bit last week um, in terms of, you know, the transfer ban and the free hit, I think you could call it, in that Lampard could be the one, from not only a Chelsea perspective, from an England perspective going forward, that he could be the one that introduces Mason Mount Callum Hudson and Adoy, you've lost his cheek. Um, I think you've a couple of more there thrown in. He could be the one that brings those guys through, gives them Premier League experience. There's no expectation, there's no pressure. And then you're going into European Championships next year where England could be set up with some unbelievable talent to come through. Yeah, definitely. It's it's something that Chelsea have been criticised for for nearly 10 years now, the, the amount of youth cups they've won at underage level and even European youth leagues, they've beaten the likes of Barcelona and Real Madrid in these younger tournaments that they haven't brought these players through. Um, if Even if you go back as far as, say, the likes of Gail Kakuta or Connor Clifford closer to our shores, these players never got a chance at Chelsea. Um, and it, it's been very critical of the club that we've, we've constantly signed players from outside and have blocked the paths of these young players. And I think we saw the start of it last season when the likes of Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Callum Hudson-Odoi were really pushing for cementing first-team places. Um, and that that's come before the transfer ban. Now, obviously, their hand was a little bit forced this season. I don't know if Tammy Abraham would be leading the line if they were able to sign someone this summer. I think Mason Mount still would be in and around the first team, but I'm not sure he'd be the desired number 10 if they had been given a, a transfer war chest this summer. But it's definitely forced a hand on. And like you said, if Frank could be the man that that brings players through, that gives them their opportunity, even if you're looking at the likes of Ross Barkley, who's an established first-team player but has never really kicked on, if he can set England up for the Euros next year by bringing these players through, I think that would also be a success. Going back to your previous question of what does success look like, it's really about bringing these players on as well. It, a lot of this time at Derby County last year, they would go on a run of five, six games and next thing they would get hammered. And I, I feel like that might happen with Chelsea as well. There might be the case of these young players will get a bit of confidence and then they might go away from home and lure, lose two or three on the bounce. But if it's seen to be going in the right direction uh, and these young players are being brought through, there's definitely scope to then improve and, and build on for next season. I think focusing on Sunday for a second, and obviously the the scoreline kind of puts a a pessimistic view on things. But he kind of he's been placed under the microscope a little bit with the squad selection. Um, he left Christian Pulisic on the bench. Um, he started Mason Mount, um, who I who I thought actually did quite well, all things considered. And I think Marino had a little bit of a snipe at him for for that. I thought mounted well. But do you see any changes going forward on that? Um, in terms of a starting living or in terms of kind of shaking it up? I think there'll definitely be changes over the course of the next few weeks. If you look at that team sheet on, on Sunday, it was missing Antonio Rudiger, Kante, Willian, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Callum Hudson-Odoi. You're missing five players there that you think will come into the first team over the over the longer term. Um, in terms of the team on Sunday, I was a little bit surprised to see Ross Barkley play wide left. Uh, he'd been quite encouraging in pre-season playing in that number 10 role and it felt like it would be a toss-up between him and Mount on who played that number 10. So I was surprised to see both of them play in, in what was effectively a 4-2-3-1. Um, I'll agree with you, Kevin. I think Mason Mount was, was very encouraging on Sunday. I think especially in the first half, he pressed high. I thought 
when he was on the ball, he was very confident. Um, now, obviously, things didn't go Chelsea's way in the second half, so he drifted out of the game. But the teams like the most worrying thing about the team selection was the defence. Um, you know, Andres Christensen was probably the best of the back four, but experienced players like Aspilicueta and, and Zuma, who has won a Premier League title at Chelsea and has gone out on loan to Premier League clubs and Everton were desperate to get him back this summer, was was really shaky. Even even the goalkeeper with the ball at his feet, which is meant to be his strength, was was poor as well. So players that you kind of expected to, to have a decent performance were below par. And that's probably more worrying than the likes of Tammy Abraham not being up to the level that, that's expected because it was it was more perceived that he would take a few games to get into that. But the really worrying thing was the established stars not being up to that level. And I think that's where that's where we might struggle because over the course of the years, it seems to be, over the course of the last five years especially, the replacements for big players have not been as good. So the likes of Zuma, the likes of Kepa, they've not been as good as the player they're replacing. And, and that's a lot more worrying for the, for the starting 11. In that case, would you have held on to David Luiz? I mean, selling him not only to a league rival, but I mean, eight million is, is fairly small change for, for transfers these days. I have said, I thought it was hilarious last week because all you hear in the media about David Luiz is how much of a liability he is and what a calamity of a defender he is. Suddenly he goes to Arsenal and he, he's fixed all their <laughs> defensive problems. So it's a strange one because I listened to Frank Lampard's press conference on Friday and it was very evident there was a falling out there. Um, in the last couple of pre-season games, David Luiz just did not look interested. Um, and obviously something's gone on behind the scenes where Frank's told him that he's going to have to fight for his place and, and Louise has said that he wants to move away. It's It, it was the last thing Chelsea needed last week. Um, being honest, if he had been in the middle of the back four on, on Sunday, I don't know what difference he would have made because he is that type of defender where there's a mistake in him. Um, but then we, we do lack a lot of leaders at the minute as well. It's, it's difficult to see where the leadership comes from and the organisation in the back four. Um, but obviously he wanted to leave. Um, the one thing that's plagued Chelsea over the last five, ten years has been player power. Um, and Frank showed that he's not going to stand for anyone that doesn't want to be part of the cause, that they, they showed where the door is. But I think it must have been pretty bad if, if he let him go, because obviously they played together. They would have had a decent relationship. He, he obviously must have must have really made his, his presence unwelcome in the, tri- in the dressing room. So... Look, you're selling him to a direct rival. I don't really think he's going to fix Arsenal's back four, but he definitely improves them from what they are. It's it's a strange one, and for as you said, for eight million, when player when Awobi went to Everton for forty million, you have to you have to question where that transfer fee came from. But I think in any normal circumstances, if we had been able to go out and sign another defender, or you know, if he was four choice behind a couple of defenders, you would have said fair enough. But in the circumstances, circumstances Chelsea are now we're left with Rudiger's injury prone Zuma's had a long-term injury you know you're left very very bare in the central defence um, so only time will tell on that one but it, it definitely was a strange one last week um, It was kind of an on-running joke for us last season um, with Marino at Manchester United and I couldn't believe my luck when I woke up Sunday morning and I saw that it, he hadn't been announced as the new Sky uh, transfer pundit signing um, in, in in flashing lights. I suppose what better men to, to talk about Mourinho than a, than a Chelsea fan? Um, you had to put up with him twice. Uh, there was plenty of good times and plenty of bad. Um, he seemed to kind of criticise Lampard um, and particularly Mount. He kind of pinpointed him fairly um, negatively. What did you make of... Um, of Mourinho and and, and his uh, debut on on Sky. Yeah, Chelsea's a weird one because obviously, you know, when he was first at Chelsea, he was loved. When he came back, he was still loved. Um, and then he left and went to Man United, and and he had constant digs at Chelsea um, about the fans, about the ground, about Antonio Conte who was there at the time, and he seemed to have a real chip on his shoulder when he left and and went to United. Um, you always look back through rose tinted glasses at, at the good times with Chelsea, but it does come with a lot of the bad times. Um, 
I think actually what's gone on with Chelsea probably started when he arrived back and he was given too much control at the start when he let players like De Bruyne, Salah, Mata Lukaku all go and then not enough control a couple of years later when he wanted to replace those players. But on Sunday, yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because, you know, you're, you're pulling snippets out of what he said and he's obviously there to give an opinion. I thought the, I thought singling out Mason Mount was, was a strange one. Um, and I think Lampard addressed it in his press conference, but he was less um, he was less on Chelsea's side than I thought he'd be. I thought he'd have a more more of a go at Man United. Now mm. I, he definitely had a go at Luke Shaw a couple of times, but he I think that, and that, that, and was, that was hilarious. That was going to be well predicted before the game. You could have could have had your house, and he was going to mention <laughs> Luke Shaw at some stage. Um, but yeah, look, he, he's there to do a job, isn't he? He, he? I'm sure Sky are paying him well. He's not going to sit on the fence. He's going to be the type of divisive figure that that he always hated in the punditry box himself when he was a manager. So I don't think he said anything that any other pundit would have said about Lampard. You know, he, he called out his naivety. He said that how he would have managed the game to, to just try and win the game rather than looking in the long term. And that was always Jose's way um, to try and win the next game. But... Yeah, it'll be fun how, how long he stays at Sky Sports uh, if another managerial comes up or if he gets comfortable there. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more soundbites throughout the year. That'll be a lot worse than what he said at the weekend. Andy, if I could jump in, I'd love to get your thoughts on, in terms of, are you worried that Lampard might be affected by Mourinho's punditry? Because there was, there was a point there where he... He questioned Mace Mount, like you said, and Lampard was nearly taken aback in the in the uh, post match press conference when he was when he was told that. So you kind of worried that you know he, he could nearly needle Lampard into making wrong decisions. I, d- I don't know to be honest. I think I think Lampard's obviously quite new to manager managerial roles, and, and you see you've probably seen a lot of them at Derby County last year as well. Mm. And the spotlight was never Apart, obviously the first few games and then the playoffs, there was a lot of scrutiny. But throughout the season, he probably got left alone quite a lot. And that's not going to happen at Chelsea. And whether it's Mourinho or whether it's anyone else in the punditry box, whether it's Rio Ferdinand, who, who will probably have a go at him in BT, who will be very close to Lampard as well. Whether that starts to affect him, only he will know and it'll only play out over the course of the season. It'll be interesting to see the team sheet for the Super Cup tomorrow night. Um, I know William travelled. I know Kante's out. So it'll be interesting to see if he sticks with a similar 11 or, or mm. as you said, Keane, if, if he does drop Mason Mount, then you can probably question whether whether the comments after the game got to him or, or whether he's a little bit more emotional and more involved than he should be. Um, and I think experience will come with that. I think over the course of the season, once it settles down a little bit, once he gets a couple of wins under his belt, you know, he'll probably get an easier ride from the media than than say Maurizio Sarri did last season. So it'll probably it'll probably over the course of the season I reckon it'll die down. Obviously he's under massively under the spotlight and a four 0 win or a four 0 defeat does nothing to help that. But I I I don't know whether Marino's comments themselves will affect whether whether Mason Mount plays any more games. I think he's got a lot of credit in the bank there with Frank Lampard and mm-hmm. I think he, he is one for the future, so I'd be surprised to see him dropped for that reason. Um, this is probably a question for Andy Ankeen, um, because uh, when you look at the Chelsea squad, particularly up front, you're kind of wondering where the goal is going to come from. Um, Giroud is 32 years old, and I've long attested that he's been very underrated throughout the years in the Premier League. Um, Batshuayi seems to be completely out of the picture. Um, he's been sent out on loan a couple of times, and I think he's just been kept on in terms of numbers is Tammy Abraham the man to come on I mean Keane you had him at Villa last year is he mm. capable of leading the line in the Premier League for, for a big team like Chelsea it's like I said last week lads in terms of Tammy Abraham you've got a goal scorer but he he flits between being absolutely like you know an incredible number nine who and, and a great finisher to like somebody who could quite easily miss a tap in from two yards you know you never sometimes it feels like you never really know what you're going to get from him and that's odd to say about a striker who scored 26 goals uh last year and you have to remember he was the first person to score 20 plus league goals at Villa in over 30 years so it's like 
you know, it, it's 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 a difficult one with Abraham. I mean, we know he can score goals in in the Championship. Um, can he do it in in the Premier League? Like he, in theory, he can, and I would be surprised if he if if Lampard doesn't continually start him. I would be surprised if he doesn't rack up ten plus goals. Um, just because he gets himself, the, the thing with Abraham is his positioning is uh, his positioning and his movement are superb. He just finds himself in these pockets of space where a lot of goals he scores are, are very, very like predatorial strikes. Um, so yeah, I, I would be, I, I'm kind of on the fence with him. I'm on the fence with him. I'd be interested to see what what Andy made of his performance on Sunday. Yeah, I think what you said at the start, Kim, we kind of got a glimpse of in the first 20 minutes. Um, he wriggled free and found a pocket of space and hit the post after three minutes. And then five minutes later, I think it was Aspilicueta pulled the ball across the edge of the box and he was caught on his heels where you'd expect him to be like a Diego Costa or a Sergio Aguero would be there to put the ball in the back of the net. So you, you, I, I fully agree that he can be he can be hot and cold. Um, I think that that is youth as well. I think he's still quite a young man. I think that will come to him. I definitely think he's the best striker that Chelsea have at the minute in terms of the way that Lampard wants to play. Giroud just does not fit that. Um, maybe as a plan B at home where you need a target man, Giroud can do a job. But in terms of Tammy's pressing from the front is very good. He does His movement off the ball is excellent. I just don't know. I, I just don't know if he would be our number one striker if there was a transfer ban this summer. Um, I think they probably would have went out and bought someone. The uh, the time he lost a couple of the balls at the hole to play, one that led to one of the goals on Sunday, and you just thought, you know, that's not what you expect from a from a Chelsea number one nine. Um, so yeah, I think I agree. If he plays, if he plays forty forty five games a season, he'll probably score you fifteen goals, but. I don't know if in the big games, the away to Tottenham's, the away to Liverpool's, whether he's a difference maker really, or if he's someone that'll just notch notch goals at home against against the lesser teams. I think before we sign off here, Andy, um, I'd like to get your predictions for the season. Obviously, we're kind of facing into the unknown. Um, a number of teams are kind of facing into the unknown, and a lot of narratives have already been set after just one weekend. But um, how do you think Chelsea will go? Will they be knocking on top four, or will they be kind of dragged into the Everton and Wolves and Leicester kind of conversation in terms of top six? Um, it's, it's really hard to tell. I think a lot has been, a lot of people have talked up Leicester and Everton and Wolves this season. Um, and I think maybe it's a bit prematurely. I think Wolves are in the Europa League, which will take their toll. You know, Leicester lost Harry Maguire, Everton lost Adrissa Gay. You know, these are teams, and I know they've bought players, but I just don't know if they'll, like, I think Wolves finished maybe 12, 13 points outside the top four last year. So it'd be a monumental effort to bridge that gap and, and get back into the top four. So I think realistically, I think the top six will probably stay the same in terms of the teams that are in it. Now, the order is definitely going to change. I think Chelsea will fall away um, and be closer to the chasing pack. But I, I think they'll probably end up somewhere between fifth and sixth. Um, and, and that's probably the best that they can expect this year with the squad that they have. Uh, with, with the new manager, with young players coming through, I think that's the height of their capabilities this year. But you know, you, you just don't know what you're going to get with the likes of Man United, with Arsenal. I think the top three are fairly, in terms of, I think City will win the league, Liverpool and Tottenham. I think would finish in behind them. The other three can be hot and cold. Arsenal have done some good business. Man United before the season looked like a bit of a shambles letting their, their top goal scorer go and not replacing them, but then look great on Sunday. So I think it's a difficult season. I think it could be it could be a bit up and down throughout the whole year, but I think Chelsea will be clinging on to sixth place really as the, the height that they can go. Great stuff, Andy. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining. All right, cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. So after that kind of conversation there with Andy, we didn't really broach the fact that um, Oli is very much at the wheel um, <laughs> Harry Maguire is the signing of the summer um, Aaron Wan-Bissak is the best right back in the Premier League which I actually have seen being touted by a num- number of people um, on Twitter um, Keen, how did you think United uh, got off to their first game of the season? I thought they were reasonably impressive um, especially in the second half Like uh, y- you could see 
quite clearly what the plan was. I mean, let's be honest, lads, they were very lucky not to go in behind um, at the break. And, you know, it was width of a post and, and Chelsea had a couple of good chances. But overall, I think the plan was set that they were going to counter-attack on them and they had the pace to counter-attack on them. So, I mean, like, they were literally just waiting for, for mistakes, um, for Chelsea to make mistakes and then transition into attack with Martial, Rashford, uh, Lingard and and you know basically the the the, the pacey players on their side. So you know it was it was nearly set up for a for a, for a win for United. Obviously the four 0 flattered them because I don't think it was really a four 0 game. I think Chelsea kind of just sort of collapsed a little and maybe that inexperience of not just the team but Lampard himself. But um, yeah, I'm not really having the the Wan Bissaka and uh, right back. <laughs> Show, uh, frankly, lads, he, he doesn't do enough in attack for me. Um, yeah. he's a very don't get me wrong, he's a very good. He seems to be a very good defender. Um, I mean, like for all the you know, there was a lot of buzz um post game about like how many tackles he got in and blah 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 and this that and the other. I mean, like he what was it five tackles, five successful tackles mm. overall. Like top of the table um was was John McGinn um with eight um against Spurs. So um I mean like. You know, there's a lot of hype about him, yeah. And and maybe that comes with being a 50 million defender and and whatever else. But yeah, look, lads. Overall, I thought Harry Maguire was was decent and, and brought a bit of solidity to the back line. And um, Wan Bissaka again was quite solid himself. Um, and and they just put the you know the I was delighted for for Daniel James. Um, yeah. yeah. Obviously. Uh, you know, he he had a rough time. He lost his dad, so you know, to 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 score on his debut like that for for a club like United was obviously was was brilliant for him. Um, so yeah, overall it was encouraging for United. Yeah, I, th- I think they're like obviously a four 0 win is leaving them in better shape than people perceived them to be in at the start of the season. I also mm-hmm. don't think it cures all their ills. Uh, like we were saying, like against sides who like Chelsea had a very porous midfield and an accommodating backline. There's a way forward for United in that, like, they're devastating on the counter. So, like, for example, somebody like Norwich, you can see United having real, uh, or get, getting real return from games against Norwich because they'd like to kind of play front foot themselves, it'll be a bit open and leave space for the lads in behind. It'll be interesting to see how they handle, like, low block teams like Burnley, kind of people who are going to give them a bit of rough and tumble because I don't know how much invention there is necessarily there in breaking teams down. And um, I think a lot of the old United problems might resurface if teams do actually sit back. And don't play, you know, Kovacic and um, Jorginho as a midfield too, and basically play four-two-four, mm. and just like invite people onto them. But um, like they can't but be enthused by it. Uh, I, 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 it doesn't solve all the ills. I hope they won't get ahead of themselves in that way. Um, but like it, it creates a bit of a buzz. I thought one thing I, I wasn't not on personal preference. I thought uh, Scott McTominay doing the big uh, Pep Guardiola lecturing people that <laughs> they scored the goal was a bit weird. It was a bit like poking Arteta in the face. Like, you know, the, the Rashford's after scoring and McTominay's giving it loads. Like, calm down. It's all right. It's all right. You know, it's, it's grand. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that seemed to be something they, they had really talked about because Harry Maguire was at it as well um, after it was the first or second goal. So I don't know what that's about. Like, if, if it works from fair play, uh, I just don't think everyone's going to be as accommodating as, um, as, as Frank Lampard's Chelsea were necessarily on, on Sunday. I, I, obviously, we can joke about the, the price and all of that, but I think you could see the kind of solidity, like Keane said, that Maguire adds to things. It's, it's very much Van Dyke at Liverpool kind of aura about him, and even I think Victor Lindelof looked a little bit more comfortable next to him. Um, and with the addition of Wan Bissaka, I mean, I think going forward, he, he he's not he obviously wouldn't be on par with the likes of Trent Alexander-Arnold or or, or Andy Robertson, but defensively he should be solid enough. Um, I enjoyed the the, the the little snipe at um at Luke Shaw, yeah. um from Mourinho. I mean, that's really? that that rivalry there. It, it has been brewing now for for the guts of a year, and it's what it's has Luke Shaw done to Mourinho? Seriously, it's, what's he done to him? It, it's what has he done to him? Has he has he like it's brilliant? Like oh, it's it's just remarkable. Like you know, <laughs> like you can just you can just tell that like if if the two lads are in the room, you know, like. Basically, Luke Shaw could just breathe, and Mourinho would just absolutely want to destroy him. Like, do you know what I mean? It's it's just a really odd one. One uh, thing for United, though, it's, it's slightly worrying. Like, 
so Luke Shaw, like as we talked about, is pr- probably the weak link in, the, in that back four. But another thing is Rashford's not mad on tracking back. So if a fullback and a winger bomb on to Shaw, a lot of the times he's two on one. He's really struggling. Like you saw that Mount had loads of joy down there right United's left because Rashford wasn't really arsed doing any work. And Shaw, already a weak link, is being like extra exposed. Uh, so that could be something interesting to look for mm. against against mm. the better teams, how, how much they can expose what Mourinho would definitely call a weak link and how much then in turn Harry Maguire will have to cover cross and what that might do centrally. But yeah, just something to look out for, I suppose. Lads, just to finish off as well, I just wanted to say best of luck to Dundalk FC against Slovan Bratislava in Europe tonight. Come on to town. Here, here. On that note, I'm conscious of time. Um, it's just about to kick off there, I think, Keen. So, mm. lads, um, we'll leave it there, I think, for this week. Thanks, Keen. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, lads. Thanks, a million, lads. I'll talk to you next week.